This is Zeninish. Dr. LaToya Jeter. And Dr. Jeter is a human service practitioner, and we will be talking about reactive attachment disorder. Welcome, Dr. Jeter. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So let's begin by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, I am Dr. LaToya C. Jeter, and I am a phenomenologist, and I am a researcher. And I just want to give a little background about myself. Um, I am from Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm a native, and Mm -hmm. I'm also a resident, so I'm a country girl. Um, (laughs) I attended attended an HBCU here, the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, the Mm. Golden Lions in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And there I majored in criminal justice and I obtained a minor in dermatology. And it was very interesting after graduation because that's where I became involved in mental health. So here I am, I'm young, I'm graduating with a criminal justice degree and I'm looking for a job because I'm in desperate need of a job because um, at that time I was freshly 21 years old and I had lost my mother on March the 3rd of 2013. And then I graduated December 2013, but I was also caring for my ill grandmother at the time. Wow. And, um, yeah, and I'm also an only child. So my mother was definitely my main means of finances and taking care of me. And you talk about spoiled. I was a spoiled <laughs> little girl. Um, I had everything, even as a young adult in college, just spoiled, rotten, no job, no car. Mama was going to get me um, on the weekends. Not only that, but I had a job on campus. She didn't want me to work off campus. Mm. So she was my everything. And so When I lost my mother, I had to grow up overnight. So like I said, here I am, I've graduated and I'm like, I need a job in desperate need of a job. And I had a friend call me and say, hey, go work here. They have kids here and you like working with kids. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll go. (laughs) And so I go and it turns out to be a mental health outpatient facility. Hmm. And at that time, I'm thinking, okay, I have a criminal justice degree and I'm at this outpatient facility. What am I going to do here? And it just so happened that the CEO knew my mom. And so he hired me um, on the spot. Mm. And that was a great opportunity. It was a blessing for me. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, now I'm here. What am I going to do? And um, he says, well, you're going to be working with some of the juveniles here who are on probation or in the juvenile system in Palm Bluff. And I said, okay, sure. So I started working there at the outpatient mental health center. And I started working with the juveniles who were in the Palm Bluff juvenile justice system. And at that time, I was trying to understand how would I be still be using my degree? Well, as a mental health care professional at the time, I worked under a therapist and the therapist received treatment plans that said different goals and objectives that I had to work on as the MHP with the client. And some of those were just making sure, you know, that they attended um, courts or that they understood rules and regulations of their probation. I also had the opportunity to go inside the juvenile center and visit some of my clients and perform different interventions with them. 
So that's how I started in um, mental health and was able to use my criminal justice degree. And then I decided, well, I've experienced outpatient. What is inpatient like? And I skipped over acute and I went right to residential. And while at residential, I worked at a facility here in Little Rock. Arkansas. And that is where I was introduced to reactive attachment disorder. And I was a residential treatment counselor in a home of 12 young ladies. And out of the 12, maybe 10 of them were diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. And so that's where I became familiar with reactive attachment disorder. And during that experience, I learned that there are some parents, some adoptive parents who want to love and care for the children, but they are unable to because of the behaviors that the children display. They have a great impact on these individuals' lives. Mm. And it places a parent in a position to, do I terminate my adoption or do I keep this child? And if I keep this child, how mm. do I take care of myself? Um, as a parent, many parents experience different mental health issues and vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, and different things along with their mental health that has came from the behaviors of the child. So my ultimate goal as a phenomenologist and a researcher is to understand the lived experiences of adoptive parents who are caring for youth with reactive attachment disorder. Mm -hmm. So I get the question, are you a therapist? No, um, I'm definitely a human services practitioner. I'm a counselor. Mm -hmm. And what that means is I probe and I ask questions to better understand what the client needs. So my main goal is to ask questions with these parents to see what it is that they they need to better help them care for their child with reactive attachment disorder. So I'm not coming from the lens of the therapist or the child. I'm coming from the lens of the parent. I think it's best for us to start there, especially as professionals and other individuals who may not understand reactive attachment disorder. We can't start with the diagnosis. We have to start with who is it impacting the most. Yes. And although the child has it, it is definitely impacting the parent. And so one thing that I found within my research is that there are lack of resources for parents. There are also professionals who do not understand reactive attachment disorder. And it's not just because they don't want to. It's just a new diagnosis is very new. It's very rare. And we all have to come together to gain knowledge and training to be able to better provide services to the parents. So that's a little bit of background. Well, that was a lot of background. But <laughs> <laughs> about who I am and where I am today and why. Thank you. So let's start kind of at the beginning, because as you said, this is a relatively new diagnosis. So what exactly is reactive attachment disorder? So when I explain reactive attachment disorder, I talk about two theorists in mind. Um, you have John Bowlby and you have Mary Answorth. And so John Bowlby and Mary Answorth, they both contributed to the attachment theory. We like to call John Bowlby the father of attachment. And I went on ahead and added my girl in there, Mary, mm -hmm. as the mother of attachment. So here you have two individuals, two different studies. Um, John Bowlby looked at juveniles and their history of being thieves. And Mary Answorth, she took the babies and she did the different studies, the, um, the one with the stranger and the one with the children um, from Uganda, and she brought them, both of them came together. So that's where you got the attachment theory from. So 
Reactive attachment disorder, it stems from the attachment theory. And the best way that I love to explain it to lay individuals is to give you a vignette, okay? So let's say um, Susie is two years old. She's Mm -hmm. not yet five because reactive attachment disorder, it starts when they're younger before the age of five years old. So little Susie is with biological mom. She's with bio mom. And while in bio mom care, she suffers severe neglect. She's not fed. She's not held. Not only that, but maybe bio mom has um, a significant other or a father who Mm. may be sexually abusing little Susie. And so as time goes on, these behaviors, they continue to happen. No care, no food, no nurture, no love, sexual abuse, physical abuse. All these things are happening to this child. And as Susie gets older and she becomes adopted, right? Or she goes into foster care, maybe not Mm -hmm. even straight being adopted. She goes into foster care. So Mm -hmm. she's in one foster home after the next foster home. And then sometimes she's even institutionalized for her behavior. So now she's going in and out of facilities, you know, from residential to acute, back to residential back to acute, back in the foster home. And then she's moving to another foster home. So this repetitive cycle is just continuing to happen. And while that's happening, you still have a child who is still suffering from um, not having a stable home, um, still maybe neglected or still thinking about the things that biological mom did or the things Mm -hmm. that happened while being in the biological mom's care. And so now you have Susie in a permanent home. She's been adopted. And these parents want to know what is going on with my child. So they say, let's reach out. Let's let's start asking questions. And then little Susie is diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. And basically what has happened now is little Susie is probably about um, 10, 12, because more more of the behaviors manifest when they're in in adolescent ages. So she's like 12. She's like 12 now. Um, Now, mind you, though, she was still having these behaviors while she was younger. But now that she's 12, um, she's having more of these behaviors. And with that being said, she's now developed what we call internal working models. Um, That was very fascinating about John Bowlby's research. And with internal working models, the child says, hey, because my biological mom did this to me or this happened in her care. Now that I'm with my adoptive mom, the the same thing is going to happen in your care. So they see that adoptive mom as they see that um, biological mom. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, now they're presenting with these aggressive behaviors to our parents. They're verbally abusive. They're physically abusive. Um, They're doing things, whatever they can to manipulate the situation and get out of it. Um, Within my study, I learned one thing that a lot of the children here in Arkansas do because my study was based in Arkansas. Um, They were released in vents. Um, I thought that that was very interesting. Um, They released their vows in vents. Um, Not only that, they were master manipulators of professionals. So while, while parents were trying to seek help, you have a child that's manipulating the professional, whether it's a teacher, whether it's um, a therapist. Um, one of my participants shared with me that the teacher at school, her daughter was able to manipulate her into thinking that she uh, was not feeding her. 
And so at that point, you have teachers, you have school systems, everyone who needs to be educated on this so that everyone can come together. But those were just several of um, the behaviors, but they are very, they're also um, suicidal. A lot of children with attachment on their suicidal, they're homicidal. Um, But like I said, it was various, various, various symptoms here in the state of Arkansas that kind of um, just stuck out to me. Um, like I said, one definitely was the releasing of their vows and things and events. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever they can do to um, self-sabotage, you have the hoarding of the food. Um, also, they were actually storing their vows like in closets and different things of that nature. So, yeah, it's very, yeah. Um, you had them self-sabotaging during holidays or just sabotaging during holidays in general, especially Mother's Day, um, especially their birthdays and also mm-hmm. like on Christmas. So families were, were being dysfunctional during Christmas holidays and Thanksgiving holidays. You have one mom where it's, I can't, I can't go and spend time with my family because I'm, I'm in the house with my family, but I can't go interact with them. I have to have my daughter right next to me mm. at all times because if not, she's either going to be eating out of the trash can or she's going to be trying to kill an animal or, you know, hurt another child in the home at that time during that family event. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. That is fascinating. Uh, I think about like the population that I serve and, um, it's largely military families. Mm -hmm. And um, as you talk about adoptive families, I'm also thinking about uh, children who might've been with one particular spouse or one particular parent, and then they move to another parent that might not have known all of this going, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And um, so they might see some of these um, behaviors or acting out um, incidences within their home. So it's important to know. I know that in my research or, you know, looking up information about this, that um, a lot of the reports say that this happens in about one to two percent of children, this particular diagnosis. But I'm wondering, is is it seen in one particular uh, population more than another or what have you found? Um, I have definitely found that it is definitely across all um, populations. Um, mm. Very common international adoptions. Oh. Not only that, um, but it is also common um, among um, white kids, black kids. Um, in my study, though, I did have um, six white mothers. I had no mothers of color, but I do believe um, a lot of things, just like any any other diagnosis with um, people of color, we have to be willing and open to receive the services, but that also goes to professionals. You know, now that there's individuals like myself, like you, women of color who are actually out here trying to help, I think mm-hmm. that also will bring more individuals of color, people of color, families of color to services. Now, one thing that I, my future research is to look at women of color, mothers of color, and how this diagnosis is impacting them and how they are affected. Um, I definitely have found three mothers right now who are of color, but it's still difficult. And like I said, I think some of that is because um, of our cultural background and how we stand, you yeah. know, women of color, people of color with um, mental illness. However, though, no, it 
definitely spans across cultures. Um, as a residential treatment counselor, I had the opportunity to serve two young ladies, African-American ladies of color. Not only that, but I've um, been speaking with a mom who actually has a daughter that she adopted from the Caribbean and she has reactive attachment disorder. So very, um, like I said, very prominent in international adoptions. I do remember um, when I was a residential treatment counselor, I had the opportunity to assist a young lady from Ukraine. And she is actually the reason why I have established my nonprofit organization, which is a home for Eden. And a home for Eden is supportive services for adoptive parents of youth with reactive attachment disorder. Mm. And, and we are going to be providing virtual support groups for adoptive parents of youth with reactive attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. But back to Eden, um, she was from Ukraine. And I, I love, I love this little girl. Um, as you can see, I'm lighting up. Um, that was my <laughs> baby. Um, she was from Ukraine. Not only that, but she was also a little person. She was a dwarf. And so I remember when she was starting to write what they call in treatment her life story mm. and she could not disclose to the therapist and so the therapist asked her well is there a house staff that you would like to help you with your life story and she goes yeah Miss Latoya and so we're sitting in the staffing and the therapist says hi Miss Latoya you know he didn't want you to help her with her life story and I say what you know <laughs> I don't know what to do what do I say <laughs> And so I became a listener for the little girl. Not only that, I became an interpreter for her. Like I had to interpret to her what happened to her because she did not know. Because at the time that she was at the residential facility, she was 12 years old, right? Mm. And so all this abuse happened to her when she was younger. So she's just now figuring out just like what my name is. She's 12 years old. So I had to also, like I said, um, help her understand what happened to her. And so through her life story, I learned that she was in an orphanage in Ukraine. And in that orphanage, she shared the same cots. She shared the same um, bathtub. She took a bath with the same young ladies. Um, And she remembered leaving there thinking, I found me a family and I'm going home. Only to go home to be sexually abused by her adopted father. And so from there, she was already diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder because of what happened to her in Ukraine. But then symptoms were worse because now she's over here with us in the United States where she thinks this is her her great home, but it's not. She's now experiencing sexual abuse. So when she was institutionalized with us at the residential facility, we worked on her with understanding really what happened to a very sweet girl. She was the different child with reactive attachment disorder. The reason why I say different is because even though they're all diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, everyone is different because they all all display the different symptoms of reactive attachment disorder and their attachment is different. And the best way for me to explain that is she was the child who attached um, too much, I'll say that. So she overly attached. So you have those who do not attach. You have those who overly attach Mm. to you. You have some who attach to you for all the wrong reasons. And then you have some who attach to you because they're actually trying to manage their behaviors. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, she was overly attached. And through therapy and through assistance from us in the house, she was able to graduate the program. And I was gone by then. I left to 
you know, further my career in other areas. But I received a message from my supervisor that said, hey, do you mind if I send you something? And at that time I was getting married. So I'm thinking, yeah, she's about to send me a wedding gift. Yeah, okay, girl. Okay. <laughs> and so um, it was a letter and it was from the facility. I'm like, okay, what happened? I know I didn't do anything here. Why do I have a letter from them? And I opened it and it was a goodbye letter from Ethan. And oh. she was telling me how she missed me. And she thanked me for helping her with her life story. And um, she was saying that she missed me and she hoped that I could write back to her. Mm-hmm. And so I still have the letter to this day. I keep it in my car. Um, that young lady really had an impact on me as a professional. Mm-hmm. And so she is one of the reasons why the name of my nonprofit organization is A Home for Eating, because I want to help the mothers and mothers like my mothers who were in my study because all they want, they feel like it is their calling from God to care for these kids and love these kids. And so I took their care and their passion that they gave to me during my research study. And then I took my experience from the little girl and I merged the two. And that's how we got a home for Eden. Awesome. So I want to go back for a moment to um, you stated that a lot of times the acting out behaviors happen when they're a little older. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I am a parent who is just receiving a younger child who uh, may actually have reactive attachment disorder, or I'm a teacher in a classroom, or I'm a school counselor in a school, are there things, are there particular behaviors or things that I should look out for when a child is young, that may be a sign that, hey, this child may have RAD or may have some other issues. Yes, according to my research, parents did share the experience of receiving their children right when they were first adopted. And so I can remember one mother in particular saying that her children, they would just cry. They were boys. And they would just cry, cry, cry. They were they were still um, little boys. I think she referred to them like they were still infants. And so they would cry and they would scream. And no matter how much she and her husband held them, they would still cry and they would just throw these temper tantrums. Um, She also shared with me about her daughter who would purposely like hide her shoes or take her shoes off at school. Um, Not only that, but when they're younger, they're also very disruptive. Um, in the classroom at the school. So when you mention teachers um, at, at school, they can be um, very disruptive at school. Um, but my study did basically focus on adolescence. So that's where a lot of my research is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was due to um, finding more research. So, so when I did my study, let's go there for a second and explain to there is limited to no research on reactive attachment disorder as is. So as I'm looking, I'm like, I'm not going to change my study. This is what I want to study. And so as I was looking, I found a study that was just like mine and it was done in the Midwest. And so the gap in the literature was that there was nothing done in the South. And so I chose the South because I wanted to do Arkansas. Mm. So I chose the South and that was the gap in the literature. And so I took the same study and I conducted it like here in the South, but with mothers. Mm. Um, So that was also made it different for me too. And these mothers were single and married mothers. So that's how my study was different from the one done in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Now the same, it was the same age group. 
um, and, and different things. So that's why I chose that because the literature, there's no literature to support um, the younger ages, which that is one thing I'm working on because the women of color that I'm finding, they have a lot of younger younger children with reactive attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. But with, with them, my study though, my parents did share that um, they did see some of the behaviors when they originally adopted of them throwing fits, crying, no matter how much they tried to hold them or hug them. Yeah. Very small. Yeah. And you are so right. There's very little information about reactive attachment disorder. Um, The small bit that I did find, it talked about the fact that, like you said, the symptoms of reactive disorder are unique for each child. Um, But some of the symptoms that they saw in infants and young children with RAD um, were like not showing positive emotions Um, like comfort, love, and joy when interacting with others, avoiding eye eye contact and physical touch, um, expressing fear or anger by throwing tantrums or frequently showing unhappiness or sadness, and trying to find things in their environment that they can control, which makes them likely to break rules. And like you were saying with the one student hiding their shoes, that's something they can control. Um, So that's, that's their ultimate, that's their ultimate goal is to gain control of the situation because they've never had control of the right. situation. So right. when you think about a 12 year old or a 12 year old in the, well, that entire range, 12 to 17, mm-hmm. they have never been in control of their lives. So their main thing is I'm going to control this environment because mm-hmm. if, if I can manipulate you, then I get what I want. Right. So right. it's real simple. It's like being at school. And like the child who was manipulating. Well, I in, in her mind, I've never, ever had what I wanted as it pertains to food or shelter. So mm-hmm. now I'm going to manipulate you or do whatever I can to control you to give me what I want or give me what I need. A yeah. lot of it is because a lot of their behaviors, because they're trying to get what they really need and what they lack from biological mom. Right. And so that's why when the neglect and things happen, when they were younger, it's like they're still trying to catch up and grasp that. So um, definitely. Be sure to tune in to part two of this great discussion about reactive attachment disorder. Zeninish copyrighted podcast and website offer opinions of Dr. Lakeisha Hudson, Dr. Kiki Zeninish LLC, and or guests. Content is for information only, not medical advice. Consult a professional for health concerns. Opinions are personal and do not reflect workplaces. Privacy is a priority. All names may be altered for confidentiality. Not for legal use. No guarantee of accuracy. No doctor-patient relationship established. For errors, email 423.4.doctor.kiki at gmail.com.